Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Russian banks can be just as dangerous as Russian tanks. Corruption is indeed the new communism, and the Kremlin's black cash is the new red menace. Now, these are all sound bites that listeners of this podcast have probably heard me say a few times before, and there is good reason for this. In a globalized economy, the kleptocracy, the corruption, and the graft emanating from Russia is a major national security threat for the United States and its allies. It's a vector of malign influence. It's a tool to undermine trust in democratic institutions, and it facilitates potential Trojan horses that threaten to undermine us from within. So how can the United States and its allies defend themselves and fight back? Well, today I have two public servants who have valuable experiences from the front lines in this fight. Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore, and I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTM McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s cool Capitol Hill neighborhood making a return appearance is Josh Rudolph. The fellow for malign influence at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, Josh also coordinated work on Russia's sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Welcome back to the podcast, Josh. Well, Brian, it's great to be back in the vertical. Great to have you back in the vertical and also joining us from Capitol Hill, making his first, but hopefully not last appearance in the podcast, is Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, which is an independent, bipartisan and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. Welcome to the world of the vertical, Paul. I'm glad we could finally do this. Ah, so good to be here, Brian. Nope, and so here too with to Josh. So here good. Here too with Josh. This is going to be a lot of fun. So this is actually pretty cool. Um, we have somebody from the legislative branch together with a veteran of the executive branch, and this gives us an opportunity to take a look at the steps that are being taken and need to be taken, both in terms of new legislation and enforcement mechanisms of existing and new legislation. Paul, you and I have been talking about these issues for years, um, sometimes on the Hill, sometimes in a bar, sometimes one after the other. And since you, of course, focus on anti-kleptocracy and malign influence legislation at the Helsinki Commission, and as I understand, there's some new legislation in the works that you and the commission had a hand in drafting. Um, my favorite is the fantastically named Crook Act, or the Countering Russian and Other Overseas Kleptocracy Act, I love that title, which is um, being introduced by two senators, Maryland Democrat Ben Cardin and Mississippi Republican Roger Wicker. There's also the Combating Global Corruption Act, which is also being introduced by Senator Cardin, together with Indiana Republican Todd Young. And there is, of course, the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Reauthorization Act, which is named, of course, for the Russian lawyer and whistleblower, Sergei Magnitsky, who was killed at a Russian prison. Like the Crook Act, that bill is also being introduced by Senators Cardin and Wicker. And I know there's a lot more, but in the interest of time, I really want to turn the mic over to you, Paul. Can you unpack these bills for our listeners? What do they do that's not being done now? How will they help the United States and its allies defend itself from the threat that Russian and other kleptocracies pose to us? Well, that's just wonderful, Brian. And thank you so much for highlighting these bills. I guess to get started, I kind of just want to say, like, kleptocracy has become this incredible bipartisan national security issue on the Hill. And there's like this really deep understanding of this among both parties, among Helsinki leadership, of course. And it's it's been this wonderful thing, because even just a few years ago when, when we met and when we sort of got got going and we're talking about this, that wasn't the case, right? I mean, this is like a new phenomenon that, that people are taking this seriously. So before I talk about these three bills, I want to shamelessly plug a really big accomplishment from last Congress, and it's not beneficial ownership transparency, although we can talk about that too later. <laughs> it is the it is the Rodchenkov Anti-Doping Act, which is another Helsinki bill. It took us three years to get that done, and it criminalizes 
doping and international competitions. It redefines it as fraud, right? So it takes it on as a fraudulent activity of kleptocratic regimes, very powerful criminal extraterritorial jurisdiction legislation, now criminal law. So we've got a proven track record, of course, going back. We have Global Magnitsky and Magnitsky, and now we've got you know these bills that you had mentioned, and I want to get into those. So first and foremost, of course, the Crook Act, the Countering Russian and Other Overseas Kleptocracy Act. Now, the Crook Act uh, has a few provisions, but the most important provision of the Crook Act is that it enables FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, fines and penalties, some amount of these, to be used for global anti-corruption work. And now this is a very, very powerful mechanism. Wow. It's like a completely like, like new sort of way of approaching this. But there's great precedent at DOJ via other crimes. So there is sort of, for example, a human trafficking fund, right, that's filled with the fines and penalties of, of mm -hmm. violations of human trafficking and their uh, crimes. And there's a child pornography fund that's filled with the, the fines and penalties for violation of child pornography laws. And there's a crime victims fund and so on and so forth. Now, what we want to do is create an anti-corruption action fund. Right? Let me stop you just for a second, also to clarify this for our listeners, because the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is essentially, if you're an American citizen ah, yes, and you I engage am. in corrupt practice overseas, you are in violation of U.S. law and are subject to criminal penalties for that. And you're saying that these criminal penalties for American citizens that violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, in other words, engage in corruption overseas, that this these funds that are collected can be used to fight kleptocracy worldwide. That's, is that, that correct? That's, that's exactly right. You got it right. exactly right. And, and, and you're so you're so right, Brian. We you know we're so immersed in this world that we live in. Sometimes you forget to define the very basic terms. And of course, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act passed in 1973, absolutely extraordinary law, the first of its kind ever. It prohibits U.S. citizens or corporations or listed entities from paying bribes abroad. It is the U.S. commitment to never export corruption, which you have to understand in contrast to our adversaries whose state policy it is to export corruption. Exactly. We literally, <laughs> we literally have a law that says we cannot export corruption. Yeah. And we've had it for almost 50, 50 years now. I mean, it's, it's yeah. sort of, an, we're the first ones ever to have this. We have pushed it into international law and it generates huge amounts of fines and penalties, huge amounts of fines and penalties each year, hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes even, you know, a billion dollars. Problem is that this money then goes back to the US treasury, right, which is weird. You know, you'd, you'd think that if we have these fines and penalties, we'd want to use them to prevent corruption. Because the idea, right. the, the hopeful thing about any sort of criminal law is that you don't have to enforce it one day. That one day, you know, these crimes are no longer happening because the deterrence effect and the preventive impact is so strong that violations are are become very, very rare. So that's crook. So very powerful piece of legislation. It also has additional provisions. It mandates that there be these points of contact at embassies, U.S. embassies that'll work on anti-corruption and mandates an interagency task force. But I, I really do think that the meat on the bones of that bill is this concept of using FCPA fines and penalties right. for international anti-corruption work. So moving right along, I wanna talk about the Combating Global Corruption Act. So the idea behind this is to create a tiered report, much like the trafficking in persons report of countries around the world and basically rank them in, within these tiers based on their compliance with international anti-corruption norms and standards. So kind of codifying the Transparency International Corruption Index. Yeah, that's yeah. In, a, in a lot of ways. And and I mean, look, there's, to be fair, there's like so many international commitments on anti-corruption. It's like, it's terrifying how many there are and how little compliance there is, you know? I mean, right. you're like, look, there's the UN Convention Against Corruption. There's the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. There's the Inter-American Convention Against Corruption. There's the Greco right. Group of States Against Corruption. I could go out all day just right. telling you but people don't bother with it, you know, with, with very, very, very few exceptions. There's so little enforcement. So actually having this kind of teeth, meat on the bone enforcement this mechanism. This is in the State Department that this is This happening. is in the State Department, yes. Yeah. So they would they would, they would would create this list. And again, there's precedent for this. It's a lot like the Trafficking in, in Persons Act, the, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So the trafficking and is it just naming and shaming or is it uh, no, are there consequences? Here's, yeah, here's, here's how we get to the, the fun part. Yeah, if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if you find yourself in the third tier, your leadership – your kleptocratic, assumed, assumedly kleptocratic leadership, right, will be evaluated for inclusion in the global Magnitsky SDN list. So oh, there's, okay. there's that's a, that's, it that's, mandates that's awesome. an immediate evaluation if you're in that third tier. So there is a, and, and, and importantly, we are going after the leaders. We are going after the corrupt globe hopping kleptocrats. We do not want to, you know, the people that have been hurt by these, the victims of kleptocracy, you don't want to hurt them twice. You know, right. so, so so it's really important to hit their leadership where it hurts. And that is access to the West, of course. Right, and, and, and right. 
talked about that on this no, podcast. No, this is we we got to make these regimes take make a choice. You want to live by the global economy, you got to play by its rules. I have one question here, Paul, I want to clarify yes. though. Is there do you make a distinction between regimes like Vladimir Putin's Russia which like corruption is an instrument of policy. It's not just that this is corrupt and there's corrupt officials stealing and this kind of old school like idea of a corrupt country where corruption is actually not a bug in the Russian system. It's a feature. I've said yes. another one of my favorite sound bites. They use corruption as an instrument of statecraft. Do you make a distinction between your run-of-the-mill kleptocracies that are just pathetic, corrupt regimes and others that are malign, corrupt in a malign way, in an aggressive way, in a targeted way? For purposes of this particular act, no. Okay, mm -hmm. just because you're looking at, you're evaluating the compliance at that like sort of domestic level, you know, within national borders. Of course, you don't have some of these states engaging in the in the same level of strategic corruption, right? As say like China or Russia do. Like they they clearly use it in a way that undermines other states. Whereas maybe maybe in the case of like Dos Santos and Angola, you have someone that is not as immediately corrosive beyond their borders, right? Right. Right. So 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 you do need to. Look at it from that angle. I agree, but in this, but it, when you're evaluating this, but maybe that's an enforcement I, issue. Is, is yes, not uh, legislation. Yeah, I, I would, I would think so. But it is an interesting distinction, and and I mean, I, I wonder. I guess you know, I'll get off in just a second because I think it's just like a fun discussion. Because I mean, it's aren't all kleptocrats in some way though being extremely corrosive? I mean, in their in their in their way when they go yes. abroad, there some intentionally though, some intentionally, somewhere the corruption is a tool that is yeah. like being targeted explicitly. Right. I mean, I know from, I mean, you know, with, from my, my work on Russia and you know, from, we, we've discussed this, I've testified in the Hill about this, that this is something that is a weapon. Corruption has been yes. a weapon. Yes, no, that's yes, a, yes. Certainly. That's a distinction from just, yeah. you know, like Angola, for example. Yes, yes, yes. No, that's, I, I, I agree with that. So finally, um, we have the Global Magnitsky Reauthorization which the original Global Magnitsky Act had a sunset clause, so it'll actually end if it's not reauthorized as Congress. So we have to reauthorize it. And in that, the nice thing about a reauthorization is you get a chance to sort of revisit what's going on, right? And, and, those, and those that sort of know the drill, people like Josh here, know that the enforcement of Global Magnitsky was done through an executive order and not through the actual law that was passed by Congress. So it was Executive Order 13818. And we liked this executive order so much that now we're codifying it. Now, uh -huh. now, now, now what we're trying to do with Global Magnitsky uh -huh. is actually expand it to, to take some of these definitions that were created and, 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 and put into language under this executive order. I mean, the, the executive order is just a, a really, it's a really good executive order and it's got some great definitions and expanded the breadth and expanded the targeting possibilities of Global Magnitsky, which is so important with a, with a law like right. Global Magnitsky. Great. Let's bring Josh into the discussion here now, because now we move to the executive branch. And Josh, you, of course, worked on sanctions, as I noted in the intro, in President Obama's National Security Council, as well as in the Treasury Department. And I've long argued we got to move beyond sanctions, which are kind of discrete punishments in response to specific acts and violations, and move towards more kind of a, a, a doctrine almost, um, a foreign policy doctrine about this. And we're going to talk more about that in the second half. But what I wanted to get from you, what are the main obstacles to, to combating the security threat from kleptocracy, Russian or otherwise? Does the legislation Paul's talking about, would this be helpful to the executive branch? And given what we've learned since you've been in government, would you? what would you like to see the Biden administration do to combat corruption and kleptocracy, Russian or otherwise? Well, what I would like to see them do is exactly what you said to move beyond sanctions. And yeah, I have some thoughts on on how they would would do that. And to the question, uh, you know, about legislation, absolutely, Paul and and his colleagues, what they what they have done to get the ball rolling with the you know the statutory authorities, most important beneficial ownership, but you know the ones that that Paul laid out as well, either already done or to come have really given us the resources, the moral authority, the international consensus to take it to the next stage. We've got a president who sees this as a top national security threat in administration, bringing talent for diplomacy and, and support for financial transparency. So we've got all of those pieces in place for now, the administration to, to go big and, and work hard. So if I were to just lay out what exactly that would look like, I would have to warn you that you know, for a threat vector that's relatively exciting with 
thugs in palaces and people in streets and jail cells and great mafia dons and you know. yeah, scandals, <laughs> supermodels like, and yachts. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, it's it, it, I I'm, I was gonna say I'm about to to give you what might sound like a relatively boring technical answer about international financial policy and i would not inflict that that's, upon that's your why we have the treasury guy come on the program <laughs> absolutely essential the beating heart of how we fight corruption and kleptocracy because i agree with you about going beyond sanctions even as a sanctions guy i would love to be able to tell you that we could just use Global Magnitsky to zap kleptocratic networks into smithereens like lightning bolts from Zeus, and that would be enough. And I mean, we should do that, and it can be calibrated strongly, but that is always going to be a game of whack-a-mole. For the, the U.S. government is probably not going to be able to keep up with the oligarchs on its own with only government resources, so what it really needs is for the private sector to build regulatory compliance systems that keep the dirty money out. You know, it, it brings to mind, Brian, your first Riga conference paper on hybrid containment, you call this cleaning up the state of Delaware and the city of London. That's about as snazzy as it gets with this <laughs> stuff, but that's absolutely right. And I, I'm gonna add a, a third less financial work stream beyond Delaware and London to just kind of walk through those three areas first, Delaware, U.S. financial system, Treasury already has the statutory authorities it needs to, most importantly, expand the anti-money laundering rules to cover more non-bank enablers of corruption, make them figure out who their ultimate customers are and start alerting Treasury to any suspicious activity. And some sectors are going to be easier to regulate than others, starting with the easiest, you know, private equity and hedge funds. Treasury could do that in a matter of hours because they already wrote and proposed the regs back in 2015. And they have out. the statutory authority to do that. They have the statutory authority under the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, they would use uh, one of the final prongs within the definition of a financial institution to say that they look and act like financial institutions, even if they're not within the definition. So therefore, uh -huh. okay. we deem them to be such and they have to create all of these AML uh, programs. There are another 10 sectors like that. This is kind of sort of in the middle for how hard it is that have been exempted from the Patriot Act, from the Bank Secrecy Act for two decades, uh, most important being real estate. Treasury could get to that this year. And, there, and then there are some harder ones like lawyers and accountants who would go kicking and screaming. So Treasury probably will not have the capacity to win those political and legal fights this year, but they do need to get there within the four-year term or otherwise Congress should. And beyond enablers, there's like another 15 steps that Treasury should take this year. You got to get the beneficial ownership regs right, make the banks start scrutinizing trusts and foundations, publish the first national corruption risk assessment, a lot to do at home. Treasury has not started that yet in the past few weeks because uh, they're mostly focused on the domestic economic rescue and recovery. But that's number I, one. Yeah. And then before we move to number two, I just wanted to clarify something because I know, Paul, you were talking about we've, in, in conversations off mic, you and I have talked about how we've made a lot of progress on beneficial ownership, cleaning up the state of Delaware, if you will. Um, cleaning up the city of London is somebody else's business, um, and we'll get to that in the second half. But Josh, where, from somebody who's serving the executive branch, where are we on beneficial ownership? Are we where we need to be, or do we still need legislative action on that? We are where we need to be in terms of legislative action. Now what we need are good, solid regulations. The regulations are due at the end of this year. Treasury has to write them to basically tell the private sector, how they go about reporting their beneficial ownership information to the Treasury Department. So and it's not going to be as easy to set up shell companies. It's not going to be easy to launder money through real estate and so on and so forth. Yeah, but the rubber is going to hit the road on some of the definitions. It, it won't be as easy for whom and which types of entities are exempted. There was this whole process that Paul knows well on Capitol Hill of every single you know, subsector of the financial system trying to, even though the broadly the banks were on board, like all of these, you know, these home builders, these fly right. by night financial institutions, everyone wanted an exemption and some of them got them. Right. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like we need lobbying <laughs> legislation. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, the, the, it, it was a, a well done process by, by Senate staff in particular and by civil society to chip in and, and try to make the exemptions as small as possible. And, 
And so th there are a handful of folks who are involved in that, who know where the bodies are buried in the statute in terms of terms that need to be now tightened up in regulation. And so what, what Treasury should do today is bring on one or two of those people who really know the statute and get them to write the regs strongly. And you know, you want, I want to let you. Sorry to interrupt you. I wanted you to move on to your second, uh, your second point. I just, I just wanted to clarify the beneficial ownership point for our listeners. Yeah, but well, that's key. So I got to get that right. Absolutely, at home. And so that's Delaware. And then thinking London, like the international financial system, right now, you know, France and like the rest of Europe, they want to tax Silicon Valley partly because Europe doesn't have a Silicon Valley. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> Going big on the world stage should mean that the Biden administration should counter that proposal, that threat, really, with with a, a much more ambitious and I would say fair idea, which is to push for a landmark agreement to end offshore financial secrecy everywhere, once and for all, and to really put flesh on the bones of that commitment. It would need, you know, public beneficial ownership registries, automatic exchange of tax information harmonized around the world, steps towards a global asset register, sanctions to motivate motivate all of, you know, the the, the, the above. That's international. If we ever get that, I'll dance a jig on the national I, ball. <laughs> here, here, though. I mean, I, I, I feel you, Josh, and I feel you so hard. And you got to think big. I mean, where's the big thinking? Yep. You know, like I mean, you got to be able to put the well, ideas out there. Administration the is filled with people that get it. So I actually think we've never had a chance like we have right now. Yes. Well, Paul, if you feel me on that, you're going to feel me on this next one because. Thirdly and finally, this is the area that you, you know, have written a lot of legislation on, and it really now needs to be implemented. So you know this best. But the non-financial work stream is, you know, the, the administration needs to reinvigorate all of these existing systems at state and DOJ of interacting with the world and checking kleptocracy, like, like you mentioned, putting dopers in jail, you know, internationalizing Glomag making the, the, the anti-corruption action fund that you mentioned for foreign assistance. There's also like, we need to recommit to initiatives that have languished under Trump, like the, the open government partnership, extractive industries. We have to clean up EB-5 golden visas, fix broken architecture like MLATs and Interpol. The list goes on and on. And like, I, I know that it sounds again, like boring stuff, but those three policy areas, let's call them Delaware, London and klepto justice. That's how right. democracies build international architecture that's safe for clean capitalism under the rule of law and unsafe for, for corruption and kleptocracy. Right. No, all right. That's great. Uh, that, one thing I did want to raise, a lot of the problematic corruption, not all of it by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot of the problematic corruption is emanating from Vladimir Putin, Putin's Russia. They, they've written the book on weaponizing corruption. We run into this problem in the United States now. It's weird for me as a child of the Cold War who grew up in an era of bipartisan consensus on these kinds of issues. But it, it's weird now that this has become politicized. Paul, I, I think it's great that everything that's coming out of the commission is bipartisan. I would argue the commission is the exception and not the rule. I worry because I do – I look at public opinion polls. I look at statements from our elected representatives, and it is hard to forge a bipartisan consensus on anything getting tough on Russia because one of our two political parties views this as a partisan attack. I never thought I'd see the day when that would happen, but it has happened. So how do we counter the Russophobia arguments, the neo-McCarthyite arguments that are that are often levied against people like us. How do you form a bipartisan consensus around fighting Russian kleptocracy? I think you can form one kind of rhetorically around anti-kleptocracy because who, who the hell is going to say they're for kleptocracy, right? Yeah. But you you both know the the problem I'm pointing to. How do we? Is this just something that was a a peculiarity of the Trump era that is now going to go by the wayside, or, or is this a longstanding problem we're going to have now? Like, I, I guess the underlying issue this gets to is how much of our has our polity already been compromised as the result of these malign vectors of influence. So it's a lot, but I but you guys are smart guys. So I want to throw maybe, this. Maybe I'll 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 take a stab at some of the some of the narrative political stuff, and then mm -hmm. I'll and Josh can take a stab at the how much of the polity already been compromised because he wrote yeah. he wrote the book on how much the polity's already been compromised. Right. Pretty extraordinary. <laughs> no, I know. So, so I'm not going to sit here and say that like polarization doesn't exist. Obviously, it does. Obviously, there's a there's 
a partisan and problem. It's a result partially of a lot of these malign vectors of influence. It's not only, but it's a yes. it's partially it's been exacerbated by a lot of these malign vectors of influence. I'll say though that there is significantly more consensus than meets the eye on this issue, yeah. uh, especially with regards to Russian and Chinese kleptocracy. Pretty extraordinary just how much agreement there is. I would actually say the real divide is not between Democrats and Republicans, but between Americans and Europeans. And that trying to figure out exactly how we forge a transatlantic That's the second alliance yeah, on this that. is, in a sense, for me, much more interesting. Because I, I, I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you try to put your fingers in your ears and tune out the noise a little bit, it's pretty extraordinary what Congress is accomplishing on the fight against kleptocracy. And the no, fight against you're, you're against absolutely kleptocracy. right about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, the bipartisanship is there. And I, and I think that, you know, it's happened in the last few years and people see it and we're, we're sort of getting the job done. And I completely agree with some of Josh's next steps. But we do. We should note that this that not just the beneficial ownership transparency uh, work, but also and not just the Rodchenkov Act, but also the AML provisions that were included mm -hmm. in the NDAA and the anti-money laundering provisions. There were additional anti-money laundering provisions beyond just the beneficial ownership stuff. I mean, it's pretty amazing what all we got done. And that was straight in our national security bill. Well, no, you know? your, your boss is writing the textbook on bipartisan cooperation, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> right, right, right. And I mean, it, it really is just this incredible privilege to work for this bipartisan and bicameral commission and have these bosses that are, you know, out there fighting Russian kleptocracy, fighting Chinese kleptocracy, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's, I, I'm much more curious as to how, like, the future of EU-USA. I mean, I mean, I think that things got very, very strained. And even, even UK, of course, and now the UK is not part of the EU, so you need to talk about, you know, EU-UK-USA, and, and, and we need to do this all together. I mean, right. that's the toughest thing. If there's yeah. one, if there's one weak point, it, the whole thing comes toppling down. Now, I mean, right. whether it's sanctions, financial regulation, whatever it is, and and it's funny because it really is us, you know. Like, I mean, it really is transatlantic. That's where all the bad guys put their loot. That's where everybody wants to come live. That's where everybody wants to go to school. That's where right. everybody wants their, you know. So it's if if it's just America moving on this stuff, it's it not going to work. No, we got to we got to be hand in glove with the Europeans on this. What about that, Josh? I mean, how much of our polity is already compromised? Is this is has this contributed to kind of Russia becoming a partisan issue in our in our politics? Yeah, I mean, the, the influence of their malign tactics haven't helped, but I don't I feel like we're sort of compromising ourselves more than it's them doing it. I would not describe our polity as as compromised from the outside. You know, Trump may have been compromised by Putin, who knows, but like for his broader political party, it's not like some of the, the European far right parties where, right. you know, seems more like they are answering to their masters in, in Moscow. I, I like, e even when Republican lawmakers have been soft in Russia, I think that's been more to avoid embarrassing Trump when he was president than to, you know, something like. So this goes away with Trump? Well, I don't know. It's a good and, and hard question because he's clearly going to continue to exert, you know, influence as we're seeing every day today. Is it like he's going to ex exert influence on on the Republican Party, it appears. But in terms of what he's going to be focused on and what types of policies and areas would embarrass him now that he doesn't have the levers of the presidency, he just he may be focused a little bit less on those issues. It's also like, you know, less of a question of, well, you know, is Trump going to veto these Russia sanctions or something? And should we therefore not advance it? That's out of the picture. So, yeah, I think it moves a little bit away from these right. issues. That'll free up Republicans to be able to have the political space to, right. to work in a bipartisan way. And we seem to have an administration that's going to be talking about these issues, pushing these issues. And it's not just the president, but it's the, you know, Secretary of State Blinken has been very strong on these issues throughout his career. So I, I'm, I mean, I'm optimistic, but it is something I wanted to throw out there. But you don't think we are that, comp I mean, and the compromise, you say from within, not from without. I see this as two sides of the same coin. I, I don't think you can really separate the two. I mean, you, we have vulnerabilities because of holes in our regulatory regime. My guy, back of the envelope take on it is that at the end of the Cold War, War, we effectively deregulated our economy to the point where there are gaping national security holes. And I think that, you know, that was the ideology of the time. And we also hollowed out our social safety nets after the at the end of the Cold War. And all of this kind of created this recipe for this polarization and these like 
kind of national security holes in our regulatory regime that a malign foreign actor could easily exploit down the road and did. Um, this is another thing I'm working on and want to write, but uh, but so just to, to to tease that a little bit. I mean, I I might I might riff off that just to say that like, I think that's why we're undergoing a paradigm shift in a way. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I I think that like never before has kleptocracy loomed so large in the mind of every American and every constituent, right? I mean, it's it's not a it's funny, you know, like like Josh lays out. Well, it's got you know this big technical solution. Well, it's not anymore. You know, I mean, I mean, it's not a technical issue any longer. It is something that like your average American now knows where Ukraine is. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's like there's like suddenly it's on, you know, everybody knows things that we have been studying and working on for years and years and years. Every national security expert is now like, wow, corruption is a national security risk. This has been the last few years, you know, I mean, right. it's. It, it, every think tank in town is talking about corruption. That is huge. That means we're. That means things are changing. This is actually a great. This is actually a great because I wanted to ask one thing that is a great segue to what I wanted to talk about in the second half. Is Paul, you're you're right. Awareness of this issue has gotten it has increased dramatically in the last several years. But is it possible to forge a national bipartisan consensus? and a transatlantic consensus that we need to fight this as a national security, serious as a heart attack, national security issue, like we did with communism. To go back to my favorite soundbite, corruption is the new communism. I mean, there was a, a transatlantic bipartisan consensus that this was national security threat number one, and that our societies needed to be mobilized and our governments needed to be mobilized to fight it. It's a lot harder to do that with, I mean, you know, because you could you could rally people against the godless red you know, hordes of communism. I mean, you know, you, can you rally people against the, you know, the the yachts and the <laughs> the mafia bosses and things like that? Or or am I wrong? Am I am I underestimating it? I mean, I think that's exactly what you need to do, and I think we're but doing can it. Can we do it? Uh, I, I think we can, yes, and I think I, and I think we will. I mean, I actually, this is, and I, I do want to give Josh a shot to speak because this is something I know that we agree on. But I think that that corruption, the fight against corruption. I mean, this is what America's about, man. This is why right. this is why like the American Revolution happened, right? We were fighting right. against a kleptocratic king, you know. Right. I mean, like, like, <laughs> why, like, who are we if not? The corruption right. fighters, you know, what is what is democracy if not a system of government that is supposed to inherently provide accountability and fight corruption? Right. You know, I mean, I mean, this is going back to the core. This is this is who we are and why first, we are. Even this is first, even prin this is first principles. Josh, do you and, agree with that? I, yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. I mean, we can rally our population in the world behind like a taking it to thugs and thieves more easily than than we could even like, you know, folks who have like ideology about like equality and, you know, like communism, at least it sort of like pretended to have something, it had something it pretended to, to appeal to higher ideals. Yeah. You could yeah. try to win over hearts and minds, not just the pocketbooks of your cronies. So I, I think that certainly there are good prospects for bipartisan consensus. I mean, Paul and I each work, you know, for bipartisan groups. You mentioned like the think tanks in town, including like on the right, the the the, the one that has the think tank that has the best kleptocracy dedicated initiative is is Nasib's work at the Hudson Institute, yep. right? And beneficial ownership was the single best test case. It was it was after 2016 when we injected the national security perspective into that and how authoritarians use shell companies that we were able to get the Tom Cottons of the world and build, frankly, the broadest like consensus coalition on any recent issue at all. So and we, now we have to do that on a lot more. Great. Well, that's a perfect segue because in a few moments we will continue our discussion and broaden the aperture to look at the implications for U.S. grand strategy of having an adversary that is an organized kleptocracy. And how do we forge a transatlantic consensus and bring our allies closer into the fight? I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C., super cool Capitol Hill neighborhood is Josh Rudolph, the fellow from Malign 
finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy. Josh, of course, also worked in Russia's sanctions at the White House National Security Council under President Barack Obama and also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. And also joining us from Capitol Hill, making his first but hopefully not last appearance on the podcast, is Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, which is an independent bipartisan and bicameral commission in the United States Congress. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review. Um, you can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can, of course, follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. Не слушал. Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. From 1945 to 1991, the United States and its allies had a global strategy for containing Soviet communism. And if Russian corruption is indeed the new Soviet communism, it stands to reason that we need a grand strategy now. I recently published a report for the Riga conference arguing for such a strategy, which I call hybrid containment. And spoiler alert, a follow-up report is due to be published this week or next on the Power Vertical website. Just a little selfless, shameless self-promotion there. Josh, you published, and now, now for the promotion of you guys. Josh, you published a report last year on, on combating covert foreign money, which we discussed on this podcast. So I want to open this up and have a freewheeling discussion. What are the implications of all this for U.S. grand strategy? It's not the only, you know, it's not the only priority out there. Um, some people say we should be focusing on China, uh, or some people say we should be focusing on terrorism. How do we fit this into a global grand strategy? Yeah, that's the, absolutely the right question. What are the implications for U.S. policy? Because you know, like you say, you coined the term. You know, corruption is the new communism, and you know, the the glue that that holds together authoritarian regimes and the weapon that they they export to wield strategic influence. But given that, what are the implications for our broad policy posture? I guess. First of all, I would say that offering an alternative that, that's attractive to, to communism in the Cold War meant a U.S. strategy of, of like you were saying, deregulatory neoliberalism, showing that, that the ideological opposite of communism could deliver more growth and liberty. Well, and actually, let me stop there for a minute, because actually in the early Cold War period, we had a very different – we had a Keynesian kind of model that was capitalist – but which also stressed kind of social responsibility and the uh, social safety net. What happened is at the end of the Cold War, and my theory on this is because Reaganism, Thatcherism, what we later came to call neoliberalism, was ascendant at that moment. In my opinion, we gave the rooster credit for the dawn. We thought that because that very deregulated, very laissez-faire version of capitalism was ascendant at the moment of victory in the Cold War, that that was the cause of the victory. When I would argue the cause of the victory was everywhere from you know Roosevelt and Neil Kinnock on the left to Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher on the right and everything in between. We needed the whole gamut. So I think that was part of it. And I think this is part of the solution. There's a reason I bring this up. Yeah, ahead, you, and you may be right. It's an interesting historic argument. In either case, like maybe the, the Reagans and Thatchers got lucky in that way that we won the Cold War on their watch. So their ideology, you know, was enshrined as the one that won. Either way, you know, it worked because then it consolidated in, even in more of a bipartisan way with the Washington consensus in, in the 90s. But yeah, so I would argue that we now need, instead of the opposite of communism, we need the opposite of corruption, corruption. anti-corruption, anti right? Like well-regulated, clean capitalism under the rule of law. Like that is, in my view, the most important strategic element for the United States, probably since containment of communism. Maybe it's it's hybrid containment, like you say. But the the other thing that is attractive about that is that it resonates with our domestic population as well. Right now, just think about like American voters on the left and right politically, but but mired in this 
stagnating middle class economically had become so receptive to these messages about, you know, draining the swamp and the rigged system and and Trump's baseless caricatures of his opponents as crooked and corrupt. That works with a lot of Americans. Right. And so now I think the Biden administration's job is to instead of just saying those things to achieve actual results. And so that's clean our, up our own house, basically. Yeah, exactly. Our house, you know, so institutionalizing reforms in our house, but also internationally through the diplomatic, legal, financial. So create international regimes that clean up the entire transatlantic house in collaboration and cooperation with our allies. Would that, yeah. would that be? Yeah? Yes. Paul? Yeah. I mean, gosh, uh, it's just so much agreement going on in this podcast. I mean, I'm a, <laughs> I am so I, I totally agree. We got to have grand strategy on this. It's got to be the alternative model. And I, and I mean, I, I, I endorse everything that Josh has put forward. I, I might just add that, you know, I, I think a strategy, it can't be anti something. It has to be for something. And the for the thing we're for here is accountability. And that to me, that's what the, it's all about. People around the world are yearning for accountability. They want, they want to know where power is. They want to feel like they've got some mechanism to throw their leaders out and have some kind of accountable elites in certain mm. ways. That's, that's in the United States. That's beyond our borders. I mean, I mean, what are we seeing in Russia right now with the Navalny protests, if not protests against corruption, if protests for accountability? That's, that's what it is everywhere. And it's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary rallying cry because – there's not a single person on the planet that wants to live under a corrupt regime. Not right. one. Not right. a, I mean, you can talk all day till you're blue in the face about democracy and democratization and, and, and whatever else. And you'll still have people that are sitting on the other side of the room saying, nope, you know, that was that was wrong. And, and, and quite honestly, you can make a very good case that that some American policy there was was rough at best. You know, but when it comes to fighting corruption, when it comes to delivering accountability, no one's going to disagree with you. Everyone wants that from your average Chinese to your average American to your average Russian to your average Angolan. Right. Right. Well, this is why, you know, Alexei Navalny, who we've discussed on this podcast in the last four episodes, yes. is resonating so much inside the yes. Russian Federation. See, no, you got, got me going, bro. <laughs> like for this model today, everywhere, you know, and all, yes. all that needs to happen is it needs to be delivered. So, so, so you can see it in the streets and you can see it in the, in the ballot box and in our debates and everything. Um, it, it resonates with the broad public. That To me, that's like half of the story. The other half is the fact that this is also the moment when the regimes are held together this way. It's how they buy their loyalists. Yes. It's how they, weapon, they, they exert influence on the world stage. So that's why it's internally consistent with domestic yes. political needs and the actual yes. international, you know, geopolitical interests of the United States and vulnerabilities of our adversaries, which is why I say it's the most important opportunity for grand strategy since containment. So what I'm hearing right now, though, is a lot of like increasing our domestic resilience through very much needed domestic reform that I would argue we need, even if it's, there weren't a national security threat on the horizon. I think a national security threat on the horizon is great for focusing everybody's minds. But the point, I mean, I modeled my kind of concept of hybrid containment on Kennan, of course. Everything you every every time you use the word <laughs> uh, containment, you have to go back and reread the X article. But this, you know, Kennan was talking about military containment. You know, strategically applying you know counter pressure points where Soviet communism attempted to expand. And what I'm arguing here is Russian corruption, Russian kleptocracy expands in different ways than Soviet communism expanded, and that we need to create pressure points along the way. I mean, I've suggested things like strengthening and updating and modernizing the Foreign Agent Registration Act, for example, I think is a very important thing we need to do. I would I would argue we, we should revive something from the Reagan administration, which was the, the Active Measures Working Group in the White House, because financial malign influence is part of the toolkit of Russian active measures. I've suggested that we have some nuclear weapons in our, some metaphorical nuclear weapons in our arsenal, like the SWIFT ban and the, um, the banning and the buying and selling of Russian sovereign debt, denying access to our financial markets. I've suggested sanctioning Russian proxies who are not Russians, like 
Bedina Ivanishvili in Georgia, for example, sanctioning them as Russian assets and framing this really carefully because they're operating in a country that is our partner, right? So we don't want to be framing this as a sanctions against Georgia. What, can you guys think of any other things? Uh, basically, you know, I was stealing your brains because I'm writing a piece about all this. No? Uh, yes, for, <laughs> for sure. And I know I know Josh has a lot of stuff here too, but I, I, I think Josh and I, we agree on the primary three pillars as to what the response to this should be. And cleaning up our act at home, which is so important and so basic is just one of those pillars. You know, I mean, I mean, the other two are international commitments and anti-corruption diplomacy. And part of that for me is also building the rule of law abroad, which, which we have to think about. There's a, there's a big carrot piece to this too, right? I mean, ideally you'd be able to fight corruption right at the source, you know, like you want, you want these other countries to adopt rule of law systems. You want them to have really meaningful anti-corruption campaigns and so on and so forth. And that doesn't always mean, you know, building out an immediate anti-corruption agency. There's lots of different ways to build mm. the rule of law, but, but, but we should, our diplomacy, our foreign policy should be based on anti-corruption. We mm. should not, we should not prioritize the bilateral so, relationship at the expense of the rule of law, which we have for a very long time. So we need to create a new Washington consensus. We can even call it the new Washington consensus. <laughs> hey, there you go. The, the, what's the your new third, Washington what's your, What's and your then, third and then, thing? And then, yeah, the final the final thing is justice. That's going after these kleptocrats themselves. That's the justice for kleptocrats, you know, uh, justice to kleptocrats, perhaps. And this is the real pursuit of these guys. And you mentioned this with sanctions, but then there's a, there's a, another huge part of this that that is always very curious to me, and that is the actual Department of Justice. <laughs> like so much of this is an actual transnational extraterritorial law enforcement issue, you know, not traditionally thought of as foreign policy, but it is. And when well, you look at- something when, I'm arguing, we've got to expand the national security discussion beyond yes. you know, st the State Department and the Pentagon or beyond ministries of foreign affairs and ministries, ministries of defense. And you've got to bring in treasury. you got to bring in interior ministries yes. or our Department of Justice, if you will. I think that's already starting to happen, but I, I think it needs to happen they were more. They were the first in the vanguard, really. I mean, right. when you look at the DOJ kleptocracy initiative, it was yep. found, formed in 2010. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that was way before everybody else. I mean, it was – DOJ is – is way ahead. You don't hear a lot about it because they're DOJ and their agency is a black box and they don't really talk, right. you know, it's like, that's, that's who they are as a, that culturally. And, and for good reason, because if you have a law enforcement investigation op open, you don't talk about it, but they've done some incredible work, not just on the indictment and now, you know, continuing extradition process of someone like Dimitro Firtash, right. But also on recent civil actions against Kolomoisky. I right. mean, we're on your third civil action to get right. back money that was hidden in the United States. I mean, right. they've, they're attacking on all angles and we can give them more authorities. We can give them more resources. We can give them more everything they need, but boy, DOJ is just, I mean, it's really, really impressive work against dis, you know, against kleptocracy sort of dismantling oligarch networks. See, Brian, John, did, did, didn't I say that Paul's into this, that third bucket, the, the, the klepto yeah, yeah. When I think well, about bringing kleptocrats to justice, I think of Paul and and <laughs> the authorities he's brought and and the enforcement priorities he's just going through. When I think of finance, Josh, I think of you. And I'm thinking, I mean, as I was listening to all this, the thing that kept coming into my mind is like, do we need a new Bretton Woods almost to kind of review the 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 kind of rules of the road of the international system? Is that even possible in this globalized world? Can we create new international regimes? I mean, Bretton Woods wasn't about anti-corruption, of course. It was stabilizing the, the global economy. But do we need a Bretton Woods-style international agreement to start with the U.S. and the NATO allies? I think that's the – and Japan and, and others. That's the natural place to start. But do we need something like that? Yeah, absolutely. That's how I think of what, what I was referring to about like a landmark international agreement to end offshore financial secrecy. That's the thing. That's the modern day Bretton Woods. That's that's the uniting of our economic and our strategic interests with an international regime. And the Biden administration should should get going this year on that. Start with the G7 in over the summer, hosted by the United Kingdom. They're desperate to get us involved in their Anglosphere, and like and and so uh, Biden should be insisting on that as being a separate issue that Boris Johnson brings up at the G7. And then you've got the the UN special uh, plenary over the summer, and then you broaden it out. You get the OECD working on it, and and broaden it out to the G20. Maybe you even have it in time for. You know, summit for democracy. Whenever that's 
that's going to be. But there's a lot of different elements that have to go into that. And yes, it's it's as important as like a Bretton Woods. And it brings in, you know, a, a lot of different groups. You know, the French might be, you know, less enthusiastic about going after particular kleptocrats, but they sure want to hit tax dodgers. So right, you know, right, it's useful right. for them as well. well maybe for- there's a maybe there's a grand bargain to be made with the Europeans where they want to attack Silicon Valley. We want, you know, this stuff. And maybe there's a maybe there's a deal to be made here. Exactly. We'll do both. Very briefly, last words before we wrap it up. Paul, go. Anything just anything you want to add? I'll just say we're going to win this fight. I think that there's no reason not to be optimistic right now. We we absolutely need to keep the momentum we've built, but this is bipartisan and it couldn't be any more American, which is just like, to me, it just feels like this is so in line with our values and who we are as a people. I'm really, really excited to like win this one and to just Your your, your enthusiasm is contagious, Paul. Um, Josh? Well, if, if I could just one up that we, we are already winning this. We we have done the most important part in the past few months, which is to defend our own democracy when it was under threat. And now it's time to internationalize that defending democracy. I mean, continue to get our own house in order. We have a lot of work to do. We need to be united to be strong abroad. We need to clean up our our financial house. But we can't you know, do all of that for years and years with, you know, forgetting the international jungle growing back. We, we've got to, you know, at the same time be building international consensus. And I think the, there's a lot of, of publics and governments that want to work with us. And, and now's the time. Well said by somebody who actually works for something called the Alliance for Securing Democracy. On that note, we shall wrap it up. It's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from D.C.'s cool Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Josh Rudolph, the fellow from Aligned Influence of German Marshall Funds Alliance for securing democracy. Josh also coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House National Security Council under President Barack Obama and also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. And also joining us from Capitol Hill, making his first but hopefully not last appearance on the podcast, has been Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. Thank you both for a fascinating Fascinating, enlightening, and lively discussion. It feels like we've been in a bar for the last hour. Ah! <laughs> I, I was thinking, I was thinking I that while we were talking. I was like, this I is just a normal conversation with Brian Whitmore. <laughs> you I'd, know? Also, I'd, also, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production. And I also want to take this opportunity to give a shout-out to an unsung member of the Power Vertical team, Lindsay Ritzoff who has made an invaluable contribution to this podcast, doing everything from promotion to quality control to website and platform management, will be leaving us after this episode to take a position as Assistant Director for Research Communications at the University of Texas Arlington. Congratulations, Lindsay. I'm going to miss you a lot. And frankly, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do without you. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. And please leave us a rating and review. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and now, as always, I leave you with an ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.